Welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani Fossbinder. Like in nature, we see determined flowers and vines clinging to life and seeking light. So are Morning Glory people. And in this podcast, I'll interview writers, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, survivors, and thrivers, and trailblazers of all kinds. These are folks that have been determined to get over, under, around, and through the obstacles that face them, or to seize the opportunities that come before them. I find these people inspiring and amazing. I know you will too. Today, it's my honor to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Dr. Adiel Uza Bakirio. Adiel was born and grew up in Rwanda. In 1988, he came to the United States to study music as an undergraduate with the intention of returning to Rwanda to teach music at the university level. Shortly following his migration to the United States, his country experienced civil war, which later resulted in the genocide of 1994. This horrible genocide took more than 800,000 lives, and Adiel lost many relatives and loved ones. He remained in the U.S., of course, thankfully, and here he continued to study. <laughs> this is a man that went to school and got more, more alphabet soup after his name than I can, than I can count. So consequently, Adiel remained in the United States hoping to go to medical school after completing a B.S. in nursing, but a few years later, his poor eyesight which had been a problem for a while, became a much bigger part of his life challenge. Adiel underwent multiple eye surgeries, but despite all of the medical effort, he was gradually becoming blind. However, he refused to let the loss of his eyesight prevent him from fulfilling his dreams. His ability to use assistive technology helped Adiel to accomplish academic goals, but it's his ability to find joy and hope, even after tremendous loss, that makes him an inspiration too those who meet him. Adiel, thank you so much yes. for joining me on thank the Morning you. Glory Project today. Thank you. So, Adiel, tell me about being in the United States and studying. Here you were, a student, doing good things, yes? Yes. And then the Civil War breaks out in Rwanda. What was that like for you to be here and to be watching? Of course, I, as an American and living here, would see the reports of what was going on and all that. But I can't, I'm trying to imagine what that must have been like for you to see and hear what was going on and be so far away. Yeah, it was a big challenge because when it was happening, I tried to call home. And my friends I had grown up with uh, did not answer the phone. And uh, I tried to find out how my parents were doing, but no news from them. Later on, I called somebody from Nairobi, and uh, he said, I think I must have seen your dad in the refugee camp, but no news from him. So it was until 1997, three years later. For three years, you didn't hear about your loved ones, your fa your parents? No, no. Oh. That's when I started receiving some information about people who had been killed, nephews, uncles. Still had no news about my, about my father. 
So I managed to get a hold of him four years later in 1998. That's when he told me that he had managed to escape from the killings. Your father managed to escape? Yes. Yeah, he was among the few of my relatives who managed to escape. Hmm. And he's one who told me how many relatives I had uh, lost. But at that time, as all of you have seen on TVs, we were seeing people fleeing, mass of people being killed. So it was horrible. Well, let me linger there just a little bit with you. I Tell me what your day-to-day was like. Were you just every day looking at the news or were you trying to write letters? What was that existence like for you during that time when you must have been so worried about and, and you so clearly you lost your mother, no? Yes. And who else? Nephews, friends, people I grew up with, uncles. Mm. Yeah, a lot of relatives. So it was a kind of a horrible because every morning I would wake up, go to the library to read the new uh, Los Angeles Times and New York Times. At that time, internet was not so popular. No, there, there, was, there was very limited internet at that yeah. time. Yeah. So I had to rely on the news from Los Angeles Times and New York Times. Mm. How was that emotionally for you during that time? I mean, you say horrible, but I'm trying to understand. And, and I think that certainly people who are Jewish, who lost so many in the Holocaust, of course, many of those people have passed by now. It's been so long, but they, they might understand that. But I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be in America, you know, just walking around with the freedoms that you enjoyed here, I'm sure. I'm sure yes. that they were not all easy, but but watching on the news or reading in the paper what was going on, how did that affect you in your day-to-day? Oh, emotionally, it was a kind of uh, big challenge. Because I lost my concentration. Mm. At that time, I was a college student, and I dropped all my classes. It must have been horrible to to try to endure that. And, and I would imagine, I, I don't know, so you'll have to help me here. I would imagine there was a a feeling of gratitude that you weren't part of it. But at, at the same time, the survival guilt. Yes. Feeling like you should have been there with your loved ones somehow. Yes. I'm yes. not saying, by the way, that I think you should have been. I'm, I'm grateful that you weren't and that you're here to tell us yes. the story. But I can imagine that you might have felt that way, especially yeah. being a young man at that age. Yes. Your father escaped. And, and, and did, you, did you ever recontact him then? Yeah, it was until 1998 when I first communicated with him. Mm. What was that and like? It uh, was an emotional uh, moment because uh, I was glad to see him, to hear from him again. But at the same time, it was a sad situation because he would tell me, how many of his friends had been killed. So and, it was uh, another load of grief. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he was just he was just giving me a report of those who survived and those who have been killed. It's just hard to imagine something on yes. such a huge scale like that. I mean, I've certainly suffered losses. Others have as well. And we yeah. can make a bridge between our own loss and that. But it's just such a grand scale to have had so many people, your whole community, I would imagine. Yeah, I can say that everybody in Rwanda has been affected by the war. Hmm. Especially my in-laws, where all of them were killed. Father-in-law, mother-in-law, sister-in-law, brother-in-laws. Oh, I'm so sorry. So you turned your energies then towards study, it sounds like, once you found your legs again. <laughs> no, what happened after the war, I started, having, I started breaking down. Mm, tell me. I already had eye problems. I was nearsighted to begin with. And then uh, with emotion and stress, I kind of broke down, started heavy. My eyes worsened. Mm. Almost as if you're, you didn't want to see everything, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like your body was cooperating yeah. with it all. Yeah, it's true. Mm. So that's when you began a process then of having surgeries to try to correct the problem. Yes. Multiple surgeries, yes? Multiple surgeries, seven of them altogether. Well, that in and of itself is quite a gauntlet to go through. Yes. You see, another traumatic uh, situation. So dreams of medical school then, once your eyesight began to really fail, that had to change, no? Yeah, I had to change because there was no way I was going to go to medical school with uh, blindness. So at that time, I changed my major for the second time. I went into social science and uh, managed to graduate, had my BA in sociology. And that's what you've pursued between your musical endeavors, your behavioral science endeavors. I don't know how many, how to count your degrees, Adiel. Have you counted them? Was it six or seven? Seven. Seven. Ah, you did see, you do count. <laughs> yes. So what happened was after getting my BA in sociology, I decided to go into, to pursue a master's in social work. The idea was to first learn how to deal with myself and also be able to help others based on my challenges. Did, did you have an, a notion to help other Rwandans or other specifically, or was that even part of your thinking? Especially refugees. Okay. Refugees yeah. from Rwanda and elsewhere. I from imagine. everywhere, from everywhere, because we tend to all experience same uh, things. Yes, yeah, so many people. I, I know people came from Ethiopia, from all kinds of places yeah, that they were escaping everywhere. war or famine or other crises. Yes. So while, while I was working on my... Uh, social work degree, I decided to conduct some research with refugees. 
And uh, my mentor said, you know, Adyeh, it looks like you have some ab strong abilities in social research. Why don't you go and pursue a PhD in social research? So that's how I decided to apply. So that's how you got the doctor in front of your name. Yes. yes. <laughs> he didn't get the MD after it, but you got the doctor before it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, you sound like you were both determined to continue to learn, but also that you got mentoring along the yes. way Yes, that helped you to do that. Yes. I, I'm trying to think of, you know, being a young man and having lost so much, how you kept yourself from just sort of folding up? Uh, what it took, I can uh, divide this into three things. One is having a positive attitude. I always think things will get better in the future. So no matter what you go through today, it may get better in the future. Well, I, I have to I have to pause here and and be with you in this moment about that because I think that for me it's it's hard to imagine how you got to a positive attitude that things would be okay when things had been so very not okay. How were you able to find that positivity after such loss? I can say that because this is the only challenging situation I, I experienced. While growing up as a teenager, as uh, an immigrant in the U.S., there were so many challenges, but I overcame those challenges. So in my mind, I was thinking, based on what I went through in the past, and uh, I was able to overcome those challenges, I think I will also get better with this one. I've done it before, so I can do it again? Yes. So that's your first one as a positive attitude. What, what are the yes. other two? The second one is uh, social support. I had a privilege to have uh, so many friends from church. Even when I had lost my eyesight, some would volunteer to drive me around to take me to church. I grew up playing uh, piano at the church. Even after I had lost my eyesight, they kept asking me to go and play piano so I, that I don't get lonely or get depressed. So I felt a sense of worth. You were still contributing. Yes. I, w I wonder how many people might be healed, find some health and healing by just feeling useful and valued in that way. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And did you find the transition from being a sighted pianist to an, a blind pianist difficult? It was difficult because you all have, you have to play by ear. You can no longer read the music, of course. Yeah, you can no longer read the music. I was always uh, good in ear training because I took some ear training classes. But still, you have to adjust again. It's a big jump. Yeah, a big jump. And so what was the third? The third one is self-determination. 
Self-determination, I can say that to begin with, I came to the United States to study, to get a degree. And uh, I also thank the U.S. government for helping us. While the war was going on, the U.S. Attorney General said that anybody from Rwanda is granted political asylum. So we were able to qualify for student financial aid. And uh, in my mind, I said, if the U.S. government is willing to help us, I think I should work hard and uh, get become somebody else. Gosh, Adil, as you, as you speak, you know, I, I don't want to go down too deep in the whole of the current political climate, but it's just such a contrast. I, I think how many grateful Rwandans there must be in the U.S. who who were afforded opportunities in the way that you were, and how our doors being so closed to immigrants and refugees now is such a tragedy. Yeah, it is. It must be heartbreaking for you to watch that. Oh yeah, it was. Yes. Where do you, now you said self determination, but I'm wondering what do you think? Maybe in your early life, or maybe a decision you made. What do you think gave you the capacity to have that self determination? Uh, to begin with, I grew up in Rwanda. There, uh, when I was growing up, there were not opportunities like here. I remember when I was in elementary school. Sometimes I had to walk 10 to 7 miles to go to school. And no shoes. Sometimes I would trip on the stone and I'll be bleeding because we'd be early in the morning. I would not feel the pain until about 11 a.m. Well, because it got, it was cold in the morning and? Yes, yes. And then, uh, sometimes I would eat once or twice a day just for education. Another thing, it's a privilege to come to the United States to study. Not everybody gets this chance. Well, it sounds like you just had such a a grateful heart about it that you wanted to honor what you'd been yes. given. Is that would that be accurate? Yes. You know, I, I always think about how if we welcome the refugee and help them along how loyal and patriotic they become. It sounds as though you've experienced that. Yes. I wonder if you remember early lessons that you were given in your family or in your, in your community in Rwanda, other than it sounds like you just said you, you, you developed determination because you simply had to, there, there weren't, the opportunities weren't given you. You had to literally bleed <laughs> to get yes. them. Then, was this something that in your family was encouraged too? Yes. My father is educated. Yeah, Fortunately, he's still alive. He's still alive and he's an old man, but he's still alive. And I watched him. He had a small library in his room. He liked to read. And even up to today, he still wants to read at age 82. And is he in the U.S. or in... No, he's in Rwanda. He's in Rwanda. Yes. So I, being the firstborn in the family, so I had the privilege to watch him do things, uh, reading books. 
So I can say that I took after him. Hmm. So that, that mentoring <laughs> that you got as a young man in the U.S. was started long before that with your father. Yes. yes. And so tell me about your world today. So, so you're, you and I are speaking through the computer and you navigated to get here. You clearly have some adaptive skills for navigating technology. Yes. What, what is your day-to-day -day life like now in terms of the, the blindness and how it relates to what you do and how, what do you do to overcome the barriers that might be in your way because of your physical limitation? Yeah, I still have some challenges because I always want to be independent. But uh, I have learned to use assistive technology. For instance, for me to be able to access this link, to be able to communicate with you, I had to use uh, an assistive technology. And is it like a voice? It's a screen reader. Screen reader. So if you meet a young person or even a not so young person who's struggling with great adversity, what might you say to them so that they can find that inner determination? First of all, I would say find ways to get social support because social support is very important in human life. And for you, social support came in the form of your church community? And neighbors and friends. And neighbors, friends. Uh-huh. And I would imagine also that would that would imply for some that professional social support is of use as well. Yes, yes. What makes you happy? What makes me happy is uh, spirituality. See, being a musician, life is not always easy. But uh, I grew up playing piano and composing songs. And my first song was composed when I was 16 years old. So I like to compose church hymns and uh, Christian music. And that's what you're aiming toward now, yes? So that's part of my hobby and it makes me happy. And uh, recently I learned how to play the trumpet and I'm becoming very good at it. <laughs> Good for you. Well, if folks wanted to hear some of your music, how would they find you? All they can do is to go to YouTube and write my name so they will get to my uh, YouTube uh, well, given, channel. Given how tricky your name is to both spell and pronounce, I would invite people to go to themorningglory.project.com and you can see Adiel's name and then you could look him up on YouTube and find yes. his beautiful music. And I want to thank you, Adiel, for sharing your story with me. I'm so grateful that you found your way to safety so that you could share this. I'm sorry, of course, for your loss, but so glad that you are here among us and honored that you would share your story here with me. Thank you so much. It was my joy, of course, to talk with Adiel today. He's rather a miracle, isn't he, to come from a place where he has personally suffered the effects of genocide, having lost so many members of his family and his wider community in Rwanda. And then on top of that, to have lost his sight uh, that thwarted his initial intentions of becoming a physician. 
And still somehow he is a person with buoyancy and optimism and kindness. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see and so inspiring. There's another little extra bloom, though, for me that's more personal to me in my conversation with Adiel. I always chat with my guests before the recording to get a notion of who they are, to see if they're a fit for what I do here, and to understand their story so that I can help that come out in the short amount of time that we have for a podcast. And one of the things that I always have to do, of course, is make sure that I have their name spelled correctly and that I'm trying to pronounce it well. Well, that's really easy. If I have Americans here whose names I understand because they're so familiar. But with Adiel, of course, it was a very different kind of experience. He comes to me with a Rwandan name, and I had to learn and write it out phonetically to try to learn how to pronounce his beautiful last name, which is, and I'm going to try it here, Adiel Uzabakiriho. And he coached me gently as I practiced, and I'm sure that I flubbed it still a little bit, but he told me, no, 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 you're very close. He was so gracious about it. And what that makes me think of is not just about his name and my pronouncing it, but about how important it is to talk to people that are different from ourselves, people whose names we might not easily pronounce, people who whose experience is wildly different from our own. It helps inform me. It helps me learn. And it also is really humbling because sometimes we think we understand something and then we really step into the socks of another person and see it from their worldview and from their experience. And we might realize that we have to alter how we've been thinking about things before. I've had to do that a bunch on this program. I've learned from people things that I didn't expect to know. And when we encounter others to try to also be sensitive to how they see the world and what their experience, whether it's trying to pronounce their name as closely as you can, or addressing them with the pronoun that they prefer, or avoiding terms for them that they really don't like, whatever that might be, it's just respectful, isn't it? And it bridges the gap. It bridges the differences between us so that we can find what's similar about us. I certainly have not experienced the loss of large numbers of my family to genocide. I have not been an immigrant. I'm not a person of color in a nation that is perhaps not so friendly to people of color these days. I haven't lost my sight. But in my conversation with, with Ariel, I was able to connect my losses, my limitations, my experiences to his to try to understand It's a delight to be able to do that. And I am honored by the people that allow me to. I just think we just have to do lots and lots and lots more of that. So I want to talk to lots of people, some that are like me and many that are different than I am. Pretty nice extra bloom, I think. Thanks so much for listening to The Morning Glory Project. I'm always so happy to have you listen and hope that these stories brighten your day and that they help to inspire you to find your own way to bloom.